From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Ross. My guest today is Professor Chase Straw of Texas A&M University, a native of Kentucky, where he got his bachelor's degree at the University of Kentucky, master's and PhD at the University of Georgia, a stint, as he'll tell us, for his postdoc at the University of Minnesota, and now as an assistant professor at Texas A&M, where he is inhabiting the late Dr. Jim Beard's position and my old friend Dr. Richard White's position. So big shoes to fill for this Kentucky native, but as you can see, he's very much up to the task. Getting the most out of your water use often requires applications of products that enhance water penetration and improve and protect plant roots. These types of applications require precision in timing, rate, and location, and that's where Frost Ink Spray Technology products come in. Frost has the latest technology available for GPS-guided applications, drone applications, and autonomous applications. Our partners at Frost are about making your spray day a better day. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. Chase, welcome to the show. Let's start out by going back over what I pinged you on offline here. This is, in fact, Jim Beard's old Texas A&M position that for a period of time was inhabited by Richard White, who recently retired. And those are some pretty darn big shoes for a boy from Kentucky to fill. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because, you know, those are two really big names that I that I heard of before I, I got this position. And I've yet to, I obviously haven't met Dr. Beard because I'm just much younger than him. Uh, and he's since passed away. But Richard White, I've never even met Richard. <laughs> but everywhere I go in Texas, I hear the same thing. People say you have big shoes to fill. So there's a lot of pressure on me here early on, but hopefully I can fill those shoes. Well, you certainly will. And, and you know from how much we get to chat every year, how big a fan I am uh, of your work and this position historically Jim was a physiologist really that was his wheelhouse plant physiology and so was Richard for a period of time Richard did a lot of physiological work and now your work at least what we want to chat about today is around water and water management so I want to just introduce you to everybody in in this way you came from working with Gerald and your work was on precision turf grass management. And in the case of Gerald, it was sports turf stuff, you know, and then you did a little bit in Minnesota and your postdoc up there with Eric and everybody. And now you're at A&M with your precision work. So let's start out by asking you, what is it about precision management that keeps you chasing it? Well, you know, a lot of it, comes down to just being lucky, being in the right place at the right time. So when I was in Georgia, one of my committee members was Bob Caro, and I know you know Bob pretty well, yep. another physiologist who was very well known. And so when I got to Georgia, he had been dabbling in this whole idea of precision turf management, and he, you know, he wrote one of the first papers on precision turf management, a review paper, uh, or more of a concept paper. And when I got there, he basically handed over this device, which is the Toro Precision Sense device that I've been using over the last decade and some of the research that I've done. And he basically just said, here, have at it and do what you want with it. So given my background in sports fields and my interest in sports fields, and then working with Gerald, who was the athletic endowed professor, uh, it just made sense to kind of start there. 
And so that's when we started doing a lot of the precision turf in sports fields. And we did some athlete surface interactions and trying to figure out how athletes interact with different areas of the fields and things like that, which was a huge interest of mine. And, and you know, I, I love doing that research. But then once I got to my postdoc in Minnesota, uh, I started expanding it out to the golf side of the industry. And that's where we really started getting involved in some of this irrigation research that I think it's been a big moneymaker already for me early on in my career, just because there's so much potential there. Um, and there's a lot of things that we still have to figure out. But I think over the last three or four years, working with colleagues at the University of Minnesota and other industry colleagues, I uh, really do think that we're starting to make some progress. We've been doing a series on water, and I started out chatting with Mike Huck, right? Mike works uh, out west with a lot of the regulations that are facing the desert climates, right? Quite a bit more arid than you are. And then last episode, which is just about to post, was with Paul Rosh, an irrigation designer based in North Carolina, talking about head design and the way he approaches how we're using that technology. And so this is a much better launching off point. One of the things that you said a minute ago was there's so much possibility. You're having no problem attracting funding. And, you know, there's so many things to do. Are there so many things to do because we've not been capitalizing on the technology that's there or we need better technology? I think uh, the first thing you said, I think we're not fully capitalizing on the technology that's available. And then from a research perspective, the technology is advancing so much quickly than we can produce results, <laughs> if that makes sense from our research. So we're, we develop these research studies, and then the next thing you know, a year or two later, something else new has come out. But certainly, even just something as common as individual irrigation head control, you know, a lot of courses now have that capability. Based on my experience, some don't even fully utilize that type of uh, control. And just with that, there's so much you can do, um, which is what we're doing a lot of our research based around is this individual control. Um, and then soil moisture sensors are obviously big, but there's a huge limitation to that whenever you expand outside of putting greens and tea boxes because not not everybody wants to walk around with a TDR probe across large areas to collect soil moisture data. Uh, and then the GPS feature now on a lot of these technologies opens up even more possibilities, which is some of the work that, that we've been doing in Minnesota and then also in Texas. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a big opportunity with what we have. And then obviously some of the newer things that have come out just in the last couple of years can just even further enhance the capabilities. So it's clear to me, Chase, that you've got two avenues to pursue. One is, do you want to directly measure stuff all the time and use that to make a decision? Or do you want to measure it a bunch intensely, develop a model, and then predict it from there? Am, am I right about that? I mean, is that sort of the two? And then, of course, the other way is the touchy-feely method, right? Make a whole, pull a core and touch the soil and say, you know, it doesn't <laughs> need water. Or, you know, I give it eight minutes every night, right? I mean, yeah. I think what we're burying here is we're starting from a place is that you want to be precise. And to be precise, you need a little bit more data than what we've been operating on. And it seems to me you're trying to figure out, at least the point you just made here, was do I have to measure it or is there a way to predict it or do I do a little bit of both? You know, I think ideally we want to predict it, right? To help us kind of see what's coming based on historical information or historical data. 
at this point, with especially the newer technologies, I think it's just trying to push the concept forward to get people to start measuring something. And we're getting there, obviously, with toy moisture sensors and whatnot, and, and now drones, which we can talk about later, because I think that fits into some of the modeling ideas. But yeah, I mean, I think initially starting off with just measuring something and creating some type of initial threshold, and you see it on putting greens all the time. People have their percent volumetric water content target, um, but expanding that out to the larger areas on a golf course or sports field, some of these larger areas are going to be really beneficial to, to determine those thresholds. And then ultimately over time, as you continue collecting that data, putting that information into some type of model that feeds into an irrigation system that's either going to alert you that you need to water certain areas across the course or actually do it for you. I think is the long-term goal, right? But there's a lot of in-betweens to get to that point. And as turf grass managers, it takes a really interdisciplinary approach with data scientists, engineers, and all of these things that I think we're working towards, but it just takes time to get there. That's exactly right. I mean, you're talking about scaling something from essentially, well, if it's one sports field, it's maybe a couple of acres. If it's a collection of putting greens across a golf course, it could be three to four acres. And you're talking about taking that out to, even if it's just fairways, it's another 20 acres, right? And then if you get into really arid environments where you are, where if you don't irrigate the rough, you don't have any grass in the summertime. Now you're talking about another 30, 40 acres. So what you're saying is, we have the greater possibility to be better and save more water with larger areas. The question is, how do you collect that data and then use it to make decisions? And I'll just throw in this other part and I'll ask you this first. You're going to get it. I have no doubt you guys are going to figure this stuff out, but I'm still skeptical how we're going to get guys to do it. Right. Because like me, you said, <laughs> you know, like you said, it's, we're not creating new technology here. There's been a lack of adoption of existing technology. I think we're going to integrate things and we've got to make them easier to use. So that's going to be our challenge. But ultimately, it might be regulation or economics that ultimately drive this. Do you see any push from that end right now? I should invest in this so I save money or I should invest in this because Mike Huck says they're going to turn the spigot off from the Colorado River 30% and they don't care, <laughs> you know, who's at the other end of it. Yeah, you know, that, that's a really tough point and uh, a really good point. And it's, it's a tough thing to answer. You know, I've been dealing with this ever since I've started doing this precision turf work. I've kind of dealt with this issue of is what I'm doing even going to be something that people are going to adopt or people even find useful? You know, the one reason we do the research is to find that out. But one thing that we did related to this fairway irrigation idea, precision irrigation idea, is in Minnesota we released the soil moisture mapping protocol, which is basically just a step-by-step -step protocol with videos to tell golf course superintendents or their staff how they can go out with a GPS-equipped handheld soil moisture meter collect soil moisture data across their fairways, and then use that data to create soil moisture maps that could be used to inform irrigation decisions across those large areas. Well, we released it. It was a free protocol. And, you know, it's been out for roughly three years. And I would say we've had probably 50 or 60 downloads and only about 10 courses that I know of that have actually implemented the protocol. Hmm. Now, of those 10 courses... They think it's great, and I've gotten very good feedback. But 
people aren't downloading it because they don't want to walk their course with handheld soil moisture meters. And I don't blame them, but it's all we got. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think that's a big limitation, is especially on these large areas. It just takes a lot of effort just to collect the data. And then on top of collecting the data, you have to analyze the data. And then once you have the data, you're kind of looking at it. Okay, what do I do now? So there's a lot of these steps that are involved in, in adopting the technology. And then, you know, another option could be mobile platforms, which we use in our research, but they're not commercially available. And even as a paid service, there's a limitation to that as well, because there's only a handful of them in the, in the United States. Um, and then the other option is drones. To me, there's not, there hasn't been enough research yet using aerial imagery to give me confidence that the stress that we can see with some of the images are related solely to soil moisture. And there, there's been research out there, good research at other universities on small plots, very controlled environments that can show that some of these vegetation indexes and thermal images can detect drought stress, which is probably true. I mean, I certainly believe it. But whenever you scale that up to a real-world scenario with all the, the inherent variability caused by car traffic and all these other situations, potentially disease, that's going to potentially skew what you get from some of those aerial images. And that's not to say they're not useful, but they're more of just a stress index than they are probably necessarily a drought index. Okay, so it sounds like we're heading somewhere with being able to rapidly collect data and use it to predict needs and then make decisions based on that data and what the model tells you. I mean, I don't think people realize every time they get a weather report, except in San Diego, I bet, you know, those (laughs) meteorologists are looking at tons of models and saying, well, the probability that it's going to be like this is like 90%. So I'm going to say it's going to be mostly sunny today because we got tons of climate data to help us make those predictions. So it's not like it's new to have to do this, but I have to say, we've had ET forever. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you got to spend the money on sensors, but you've worked west of the Mississippi. <laughs> where you come east of the Mississippi, where rainfall becomes a bigger factor, I really don't hear much chatter about ET in the same way, particularly on large scale stuff. Most of the time, it's see, I give the fairways eight minutes and they get through the day. I work in an area where water generally is in between the rain events. And when we get really long dry periods, we find out how ineffective, inefficient some of our irrigation systems are. So that's a long way for me to get to the question, do you find most superintendents who water well at least are regularly monitoring ET and adjusting ET based on ET values for the way they want to water? Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because anytime I'm talking to a group of superintendents and I talk about soil moisture sensors, I also talk about ET, I always try to gauge what people are using. And a lot of hands will get raised when I ask if they look at ET or use ET. But then when I actually start singling out people and I ask, okay, how do you use it? It really comes down to, I just glance at it. You know, I don't really use it to to make any type of decision. I just kind of glance at it. And, you know, I have mixed opinions about it. It's obviously a very useful tool. I think it should be considered more than it probably is. But the ET, 
you know, you have one weather station at a golf course and then you use ET. I think that's a good starting point to kind of give you an idea about run times and how much you should be applying back. But going back to the precision, I think tying that ET with soil moisture is going to get you really dialed in. And then if there was some way to model all of this information, even the vegetation indexes from drones, I think as an industry, as a golf industry especially, that's what we should be working towards is tying in all of these readily available pieces of data Mm -hmm. to create these predictive models that we talked about. And with the irrigation systems, we have the capability now to to irrigate within individual, you know, head control. So we're able to make the applications. Uh, It's really just figuring out how to adjust those run times accordingly. That is Dr. Chase Straw, professor at Texas A&M University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after this message. Getting the most out of your water means getting it in and down into the soil profile. The inability to move water and products such as fertilizers and pesticides to the depths of the root zone is a critical concern for golf course superintendents. Dryject Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for deeper rooting and better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Dryject Service representative or visit dryject.com. All right, Chase, welcome back. I want to chat about some of the work you've been doing and been a part of, at least been privy to, where you're looking at soil moisture sensors or ET-based approaches and looking at irrigation scheduling and the best way to do that and how much water you use. And I wonder, when you do a study like this, it seems to me because you've got to decide when you want to water. Now, I'm thinking through how a superintendent might do it. And if they want fast and firm conditions, it's okay. Number one, are they going to put up with some brown spots? And number two, how long can I get those brown spots to go before they become hydrophobic and I can't re-wet them? So how do you go about setting those targets for what you think the plant needs when you're going to start some scheduling research? So for the ET-based approach and in, in, in the research that we've been doing, we basically have just been using a deficit approach where we'll apply a certain percent of water back based on ET values from a weather station. Okay. For the soil moisture sensors, it gets a little tricky because especially as you move from course to course because things are going to influence overall goals. So And that's going to influence how much water you want to apply because some courses can only have a certain level of visible wilt or discoloration. So it's going to be really difficult to just say from a soil moisture sensor standpoint, here's a number and this is going to work for everybody. You almost have to set your threshold on a site-by-site basis. And that, that could even be true for within a golf course. And the way that we've been doing it in our research, especially the fairway research, is that we conduct dry down. So we get a really good idea of field capacity, and then we let the fairways dry down from field capacity until there's some type of visible will where the superintendent just begins to feel uncomfortable. Obviously, our intention is not to try to push it until we've reached permanent wilting point. So this is probably a soil moisture level that's kind of right above that point. Um, and then we, we take that field capacity and the permanent wilting point, that's our plant available water. In Minnesota, the study, we used the threshold. Once we reached that point where the superintendent was uncomfortable, that was our threshold. And that was just right before some type of visible wilt. 
In Texas, we're taking a little bit different approach where we've, we've done these drawdowns. We've got filled capacity. We have an idea of soil moisture filled capacity, an idea of it at the near permanent wilting point. Um, and then we do an allowable depletion. So we take that range of plant available water and we'll apply anywhere from 60 to 80% back depending on where the sensor is. So that's the approaches that we've taken. And in the research, if any of the listeners ever dive into the research with soil moisture sensors and thresholds, you know, this could really affect the results of water use that gets reported in the studies, which is why it should always be taken with a grain of salt. But it's and another reason why I always mention that it should be site-specific. And if you have soil moisture sensors you're using at your turf grass facility, you should try to come up with your own threshold that fit whatever scenario you're in. I had the pleasure of looking through this whole notes article with Ryan Schwab and you and Josh and Eric. And this threshold idea, when you look at this really good article in whole notes, I'll commend this to everybody because the images are really cool. And I think if you think about your fairways as where are my dry spots, where are my wet spots, and where are my medium spots, maybe you don't have to take so many gridded measurements, right? Is some of this a way of reducing the data collection that if you know where you have some wet areas, go measure the soil moisture there and you have some dry areas and then do the dry down and you'll see where these thresholds are. Is that a simple way to approach it? Yeah, absolutely. That brings up a really good point because in Minnesota, I did a study where I interviewed golf course superintendents to try to figure out what their knowledge was on soil moisture variability in their fairways. And basically, the the findings ultimately boil down to superintendents have a general idea of where their wet and their dry spots are. The advantages of having the data and having the maps is that you have a number attached to those wet and dry spots so that you have an understanding of, okay, I'm going to start seeing wilt in this spot whenever I reach X percent soil moisture, X percent volumetric water content. A simplified way of determining these wet and dry spots on fairways is to just conduct an in-house dry down. And then once you reach a point where you're uncomfortable, go out with your TDR in those few spots, maybe the, the wet spots or, and then the driest spots across an area, and you can get a good general idea of your high and low volumetric water content values by doing that. How much of what you were talking about a minute ago between the work in Minnesota and the work in Texas was related to your growing a cool season grass versus a warm season grass? Because now you're doing similar work with two grass types. I'll just speculate and say you can go much drier with Bermuda grass, and that's partly why you can invade that plant available water more, right? You have more available water to that Bermuda grass because it can survive with less. Yeah, that's right. It, it can. We're starting. We do see that uh, the, our thresholds are lower here in Texas, and, and now, granted, the research is only being done on one golf course in each state, so it could change course to course. But yeah, generally speaking, uh, our thresholds are lower here in Texas. And uh, one thing that we're finding with some of the fairway precision turf research here at the course uh, in Houston is that we've basically only been considering the fairway itself. And in Minnesota, we didn't run into this issue. So the roughs in Minnesota were Kentucky bluegrass, and then we have Bermuda grass roughs here in Texas. And whenever we conduct these drawdowns, we actually don't see wilt in the fairways. Hmm. We see wilt in the roughs. 
So the way that we set up the study is actually a big limitation because we're creating our fairway thresholds based on rough wilt, visible wilt, but we didn't collect soil moisture data in the roughs because we just didn't consider it. Whenever I, I speak now moving forward, I always want to mention that if you're irrigating full circles, fairways, and roughs, that even expands the data collection out even more where you have to collect the data out in the roughs because those are going to be potentially become hot hot spots before the fairways are. Well, and now you've raised two questions. One is when you got to have the rough area green and all you've got is full circles out there, you're going to have a lot of brown triangles, right? Triangular areas where there's no overlap from maybe a tree line area where there might not be any irrigation. And the other point is, How many times are these wet, moderate, and dry spots related to poor irrigation system functioning and design? And no matter how good the data you have, Chase, is to make decisions, how often do you find that this irrigation system, either because of the way it's designed or the way it's functioning with a nozzle or pressure, just can't do what it needs to do? It gets more complicated, doesn't it, Frank? <laughs> yeah, these are, these are things that we discuss, and and where we are in our capabilities from a research standpoint is we've done the best we can. We did catch can water audits, um, and you know how extensive they are oh. just on small areas. We did catch can water audits once a year up in Minnesota so that we can try to account for any deficiencies in the irrigation system and some of these lower-quality turf areas that we see within our irrigation treatment. And we're going to try to do the same here in Texas, but once you scale up to 30 acres of fairway, I mean, it just gets really hard to account for that. But that's obviously going to play a major role in something that definitely needs to be strongly considered in the future of what the impact of irrigation efficiency is on the type of research that we're trying to do. And of course, the easy thing to think about is even if you do a catch can test, and you got a rolling fairway with knobs and low spots, you could catch it on the knob, right? You could put your catch can on the the knob, but a lot of that's going to run down to the low spot. So do you find that it's also useful when you do the catch can to look at soil moisture after that as well, Chase? Is that part of what you're measuring? Yeah, definitely. And so we've done that. We we did that in Georgia, uh, Gerald and I, on sports fields. And then did some uh, correlations between soil moisture and above ground irrigation distribution, mm-hmm. and actually saw some mixed results. But that's a lot different, right? Than it's a, dead a fairway flat. that has, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, dead right, flat. right. So yeah, certainly, um, and that's something that we we have data that we're sitting on that we we want to make those correlations with. And that's obviously going to influence the soil moisture variability as well. So, yeah, topography, fairways are just a different animal. And then you factor in the compaction, which we're fortunate to be able to measure on a native soil fairway with all the car traffic and variability patterns that could influence water infiltration and, and, and runoff and things like that. Fairways are really complicated systems. And the crazy thing about it is you do one fairway, you collect data across one fairway, make correlations, see one result. You could go over to the fairway way right next to it and get something completely different or much weaker correlations or even in some instances opposite relationships of, between variables so they're just really complicated systems but with that being said 
I think that there's some fear out there of technology taking over jobs and all of that. <laughs> I think a good point is this is where with complex systems like golf courses and to a certain extent even sports fields, having that experienced turfgrass manager and their knowledge of historical situations is going to be really beneficial in interpreting the data that's collected. Because if you take things for face value, especially some of the things that we see, if I'm not talking to the superintendent about some of these crazy results that show up on fairways, then I'm not fully understanding really the entire situation. That's exactly right. We talk about this all the time on the show because I'm obsessed with having data to make better decisions, but also know we're in the infancy of figuring out, you know, what data do we need? Do we have to walk the entire golf course with a soil moisture meter? Or if I can determine, number one, that my golfers like it a little bit brown in some areas. And I say I generally, when I visit arid areas, which I get the pleasure to do, when it gets really arid, I want to see some brown spots because I know no irrigation system is going to be perfect. And if, in fact, you've got uniform green everywhere, I often wonder if you're overwatering to get those things green certainly worries me there. But what I like to say is data is going to make people better, but it's not going to make them better if it's got to be uniform green. So, Chase, as you get out there and work with superintendents and you talk about drying down, Do you see more willing to let the fairways dry and be a little browner because that's preferred by some of their golfers? Or are you still seeing a good, strong push for uniform green? I I think overall, I'm still seeing the, the push for uniform green. But with that being said, I don't know if it's just the superintendents that I've dealt with or what, but whenever I ask or request nicely for a dry down to see some brown, they're usually open to it for research purposes, at least. Um, and then they, they get it greened right back up. Um, but I think that brings up a really good point. And, and another thing that we began doing in Texas with some of our irrigation research on fairways, one key takeaway, and we're not done, we're still slowly working through the Minnesota data, but one of the just anecdotal takeaways from that research is that we think with our precision irrigation treatment, where we're irrigating only certain areas within the fairways at certain times and even the rest alone, we think that they're taking a hit on turf quality through our NDVI measurements. So with that said, once we got to Texas and we're replicating the study currently at a course in Houston, we wanted to tie in the golfer perception factor to see if we could somehow get golfer responses on their perceptions of playability and also visual quality of these fairways between all of our different irrigation treatments to see if we are taking a hit with our precision treatment and we are getting a little browner than we are with our ET-based treatment or our other treatment. Are golfers even recognizing that difference? Is it even something that matters to them? You know, we're eight weeks into our study here in Texas, and we were fortunate to have what I think is a successful survey uh, where we were able to give golfers a very brief survey after their round. We asked them their perceptions on quality and playability of all the fairways that are in our study. And we're hoping that over the course of the next year and a half, as we wrap this study up, we're going to have several hundred responses that we can correlate with our quality data and our water use data to say, okay, with this precision treatment, we're saving X amount of water. We are going to take a hit in turf quality, 
but the golfers don't necessarily recognize it. That would obviously be the ideal scenario, right. uh, but we'll see what we get here in, in, once the study's over. Don't you see, this is brilliant work, Chase, by the way, don't you see, though, that if you can gather enough perception data or if there was a method to figure out how to get that from your golfers, right, to satisfy most of them, assuming, isn't this what's going to we can calibrate the drones to? If you can isolate it to being a function of water use and you know what the threshold is visually, won't this make the drone information that much more useful? One hundred percent. And I think right now that's the most valuable thing with the drone. You know, I worked with a lot of golf courses up in Minnesota and I'm still working with a lot here in Texas, but I'm the new guy. So they're still kind of filling me out. (laughs) But in Minnesota, in Minnesota, you know, there was several golf courses that I, I went to that actually had and they didn't always love it, but they got feedback from golfers just because that was part of the routine. Like, how you know, how's the restaurant doing? How's the golf course doing? Whatnot. And they would get feedback from from people that played the course. And I think if you could somehow utilize that information of getting golfer feedback about your course and then keep track of that information throughout the year, and then if you're simultaneously flying your drone, you're getting your NDVI and your other turf quality measurements from your drone. It goes back to those thresholds. I think you start looking at your drone imagery and saying, okay, whenever I was this NDVI value, you know, I was getting a lot of really positive feedback about the course. So this should potentially be our target. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can adjust accordingly throughout the year. And that could obviously change throughout the year, but I think utilizing golfer feedback and instead of just kind of throwing it to the side, because I'm sure a lot of it's nonsense, but some of it could be valuable. And if it's not valuable, then maybe you could reframe the survey or whatever they're giving out to make it valuable. That's the end goal, right? Is to make the golfers happy, 100%. make everybody's experience good, and then obviously manage the course in a sustainable manner. Right. But I feel like definitely that golfer, and we do it on the sportsville side of things too with the research, the athlete perception, you know, those are the things that matter the most from a business standpoint. So we need to be able to tie some of these variables that we're able to collect to some of that perception. Yeah. And, and pace of play, right? I mean, that, you know, the fairways drier, they hit it further because most uh, average male golfers are playing too far back. They they should be hitting a seven iron into most greens or less. And they're hitting three woods, right? And so if you yep. you know you let it get drier, it rolls further, it could have impacts on pace of play, could have impacts on the way it holds up to traffic, right? Could impact how much you have to mow it to produce that surface. But here's the thing, Chase. A lot of these guys are doing this already. You probably have a lot of guys, and I talked to your colleague, our colleague, Ben Worley, about this. If you're already looking at ET, you're in an arid environment, and you're deficit irrigating, how much better do you think all this technology is going to get me? Now, that's my sarcastic question. (laughs) The other question is, is this technology going to be how we respond to the pressure we get as an industry to reduce water because, number one, of optics, right? We're very much about the optics of perfectly green grass in a drought. And then there's We're going to be regulated. You're just not going to have access to that much water. So how much better are we going to get? And is this technology going to make it possible for us to actually reduce water? Yeah, I think to answer your first question, 
I sound like an extension agent, and I'm not an extension agent, uh, but it depends. It's just going to depend if the technology is going to be a benefit for uh, a turf manager. I personally think even if you're skeptical, you don't know until you try it. And then once you try it, utilize it to the best of your ability so that you can make some type of improvement. Um, but, you know, if you're already in an arid environment, you're doing deficit ET, I think the big water savings from that standpoint is the site-specific, is being precise about the location of where you put things um, and adjusting run times. Because if you go just strictly ET and you do a deficit, you're still doing a blanket application typically, right? And I get it. Those who have individual control, they're going to adjust run times on individual heads and whatnot so that some heads run longer than others. But I think in certain situations, some heads don't even need to be turned on at all. And I think that's where you're going to see the biggest water savings and to really figure that out, you have to be able to go out there and collect the data, in my opinion. And then your second question, I think absolutely the technology is going to be a game changer as the regulations continue to increase. I was fortunate to work with Jack McKenzie, and I don't know if you knew Jack McKenzie. He was the executive director for the Minnesota Golf Course Superintendent Association yeah. two years I was in Minnesota. I, I, knew, I knew Jack when he was a golf course superintendent. I've known Jack so okay. long. You've been around a while. I've been around you? a while. That's right. <laughs> but he was in, you know, I, I admire Jack a lot because not only was he really involved with the university research, but he really brought me along to a lot of things that were eye-opening for me as a young person in my career. And I was able to spend, I, I had the opportunity to go with him to the Capitol in St. Paul and speak with uh, legislators on water use in golf. And, you know, he was always ahead of the curve because Minnesota, they got plenty of water up there, but you never know, right? And you, you never know when things or restrictions are going to come down and are going to impact golf courses, even in areas where there's a lot of water. And so we spoke to the legislators for the subcommittee on water regulations, and I started talking a little bit to them about the soil moisture sensors and some of the mapping technologies that we have. And the look on their face to even think or realize that the golf course industry even has this, these tools and technologies on hand, you know, it was just, it was all new to them. They had no clue that golf course superintendents were that dialed in with their water use. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for people in other states and across the country to let decision makers and, and people that have big roles in some of the potential regulations down the road, let them know that we're doing the best we can as an industry. We have technology to make very informed decisions. Um, and I think it's certainly going to help with the optics of the industry that, you know, people think that we're just these big water-consuming golf courses. Um, but we actually do make very well-educated decisions based on technology to the best of our ability. So, yeah, that was a really eye-opening experience speaking to legislators. And I certainly think that technology and technology adoption is going to be very, very important moving forward. And so as we wrap up, I couldn't agree more with that statement, and I'm so glad to see that Jack got you involved uh, at that level to get exposure to that. And also, early on, Chase, you said the need for more interdisciplinary work, data scientists. But one of the disciplines I wonder if you think we should have more impact on is the way these systems are designed. And I had Paul Rosh on, who's a longtime friend, longtime designer, and I asked him this question. You haven't heard it yet, so we'll hear from you. I said, well, you know, you got this piece of land that you got to get irrigated and you guys just put heads out there in a gridded fashion in a row pattern, 
He was very much against a single road down the system, you know, the middle of a fairway. He, you know, at least thinks you should irrigate the middle of the fairway accurately. Uh, he did like, you know, parts in and parts out. And he was talking about rescue heads where you might need a little extra water. But you made the comment earlier. You're like, I don't even have to turn that hat on. And I'm wondering, do you think part of us being successful is going to maybe mean designing these systems with less than 2,000 heads or more than, is 2,000 the right number of heads? I'm thinking if you're doing all this work to find these differences in soils and differences in climates, you know, microclimates and quality expectations, fairway to fairway, would you tell an irrigation system designer to design it differently than they're currently doing it? I spoke to a group at uh, the, the Golf Course Builders Association a few years ago, and I was talking a little bit about our irrigation and our soil moisture mapping research. And, and I got a lot of questions and a lot of interest from irrigation design people. Mm-hmm. And then Brian Horgan, which I know you've talked to before mm-hmm. on this show as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Minnesota and we were starting to work up there, you know, he, he came up with this idea of, you know, why don't you write a paper on how you can redesign irrigation based on soil moisture variability? And I was like, what are you even talking about? I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't think, of, you know, I didn't think anything about it. But as I've done more, uh, you know, more of this work, and then you've raised the question and other people have raised the question as well. I do think that, I don't know if you can do it when courses are, new, new courses are being constructed, because it's just, you don't, you don't have an understanding of the soil and the, all the variability that's going to happen. But for any type of redesign or reconstruction, yeah, I mean, as long as you're not moving a lot of land and a lot of soil, one thing that we're seeing is soil moisture variability really doesn't change that much over time unless there's just some big construction. So I could certainly see for a redesign for irrigation system, just completely rethinking the way that things are laid out, certainly. And by no means am I an irrigation design expert, but based on some of the data that we've collected on different soil variables, I certainly think that we could uh, make our design more efficient. But I totally also understand, I completely understand why we do it the way we do it now, right? Because when you're building a new course, it's safe, you're covering all your areas, which is why I think the individual head control has been a game changer over the last decade or or more. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think you often do see heads installed, especially down where you are, where they fertigate, you know, yeah. that you have it everywhere. But then you take them out of the rough because you want the rough to become rangeland or or burnt out a little bit. Right. You just want to grow it in. And then as it matures, you're saying maybe we need some flexibility, you know, in a renovation as you learn the way you want to water and you don't think you can do it by just adjusting run times. And that, and that was the question, right? That, that, that was the way Paul answered it. And so everybody's going to have to listen to both of these. <laughs> it was <laughs> that, that you can compensate for a lot of these things by yeah. al- altering run times, maybe putting a rescue head, part circles, being a little bit more precise. Because I do think they have heads now that can be 360 and 180. They've got a lot of mm-hmm. improved uh, head technology now that I think will be more flexible in the future if we want it to be like, maybe you just want it to be a quarter circle. You just want it to move in this spot for a few minutes. I think the bottom line is this. I've spent, I've spent three shows chatting about water chase. Do you get the sense that at this stage in your early career, that you pick the right topic based on the things society's concerned about 
relative to golf? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, between water and carbon emissions, which I'm starting to do a little bit of work in, um, I think that I think water is, is certainly one of the top. It is the top, at the top of the food chain there when it comes to that. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly thankful for my my opportunity in Minnesota because that got me into the golf world, and I, I've certainly hit the ground running here in Texas with the with the water on golf courses uh, in my research here as well. So yeah, certainly uh, water has definitely been good to me so far from a research funding standpoint. That's excellent, <laughs> and I know it's of great service to the. Turfgrass managers uh, in in that region, of course, in the great state of Texas, and and I just love that line. They're still feeling me out. <laughs> I remember what that was. I remember what that was like when I started my career at uh, at Michigan State and UW Madison into a you know a, a long time program in both places and coming in, and I I felt like that for the first few years. But all I can tell you, Chase, is if most of those places accepted a you know a dope like me, I'm pretty sure Texas can put up with a guy like you really appreciate you taking the time to join me and i hope you have a great rest of your summer and i hope all that great research continues to pay off for you uh, and everybody else thanks for taking the time chase thanks a lot frank all right chase straw texas a&m university i'm frank rossi this is frankly speaking we'll be right back Golf course water management typically includes the use of wetting agents. And when you want simple, no-nonsense solutions, that's where the plant food company comes in with an array of innovative wetting agents and soil penetrants. These products are tested in university trials and are backed by the pros at the plant food company. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Just a note about this three-part series we've done here on Frankly Speaking around water this summer. We did a regulatory episode with Mike Huck of Turfgrass Irrigation Services in Southern California. We did systems design with Paul Roche of Golf Water based in North Carolina and I think now in Connecticut. And we did research and development today with Chase Straw from Texas A&M University. The pressure is going to increase to reduce our water use. And it's going to start with politics and economics and ultimately regulations that's going to start to influence our decisions. So we've got to be cognizant of those politics and, of course, money. This might be, for some, a problem they can continue to buy their way out of. Now, our irrigation technology is going to continue to improve, and that's going to improve our efficiency, but only if we use it. And research is going to continue to identify approaches that allow us to anticipate demand and dial in performance. Now, in the end, if you're west of the Mississippi, you're going to be confronting persistent drought. East of the Mississippi, we're going to be confronting intermittent drought. Either way, we've got to be a little bit better about site-specific management in our larger areas. Now, golfers need to be part of this discussion, and superintendents are in an ideal position to work with golf's governing bodies and NGOs to provide sustainable solutions to our water needs in a warming world. Big thanks to Chase Straw from Texas A&M University and to my colleagues, Mike Huck and Paul Roche, who've been part of this series on water. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. 
You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.